Well, amen. Praise the Lord Jesus, right? Friends, I'm glad to be here this morning to preach the Word of God to you. And if you have your copy of God's Word, open again to Genesis 41. Sometimes the passages will be here on the screen, sometimes not. And I'd love for you to have that full spread of this story of Joseph going, as one pastor said, from the pit to the pinnacle in very short order. We're going to look today at this passage of Scripture in Genesis 41. All right, well, I have to say that this week has not turned out like I thought it would. Um, Let me give some context. My wife and I had some big plans to celebrate our son's 12th birthday. That's still going to happen. We had planned to travel and see some family. And in the midst of that, even for my wife to get some downtime, she'd not been feeling very well, uh, just to recover from some health challenges. Then on Tuesday night at 11, a series of events happened. Our dog came back in from outside. My wife gasped and put her hand up to cover her nose. And I followed my nose to find our poor dog lying on her bed with her eyes firmly shut and foam coming out of her mouth and smelling like a skunk. That was an awful night. That was around 11 o'clock, as I I may have mentioned. So for the next two-plus hours, we were diligently defumigating our dog, starting the laborious process of defumigating our home which is still going on to this day. (laughs) All right, so as I said, this week has not turned out quite like I thought it would. But the real problems began a little later on. Uh, I noticed it in others before I noticed it in myself. Impatience with and anger towards each other. Now, you could blame it on the smell. If you've not smelled a skunk with a fresh spray on a dog, it's a bit different than the odor when you pass it on the road. Um, It could be that. I mean, put that on anybody, and I could see how they'd get a little testy. Maybe it was not getting much sleep or having our plans completely change. But, you know, I think when you get right down to it, what we experienced this week was typical of what happens when you get down into a low place in life. But I got to confess to you, I've also experienced the same thing when I've had things going really, really well whether it's like a really low week like this week or things just kind of turn and I have a really great week and lots of things go well. We get a little extra money or we get a little time off that we didn't plan or people give us unexpected praise or something I tried to do turned out really well, whether that's a home project or an exercise in ministry here at church. If I get myself in either of those spots, whether the, the depths of the skunk or the heights of success, I still find that I'm kind of the same in dealing with whether it's impatience on the one hand or anger, or on the other hand, thinking much of myself and in the midst of it all, forgetting about God. I find in this story of Joseph an amazing display in both the lowest of pits And in the highest of privileges, the same guy, a man of integrity, whether he is low or high, what he comes and presents to all of those who interact with him 
is this massive view of God. This God-sized vision of life. And I know that we started the story of Joseph with his dreams. And I do think he was a bit impetuous and immature in sharing the content of those dreams the way he did with his brothers and his extended family. But what we've seen happen from that time up to now in Genesis 41 is a maturing and a growing. And as I've read this story and reflected on this week, I want you to likewise reflect on your lives and your weeks. Whether you're in a spot that's really low right now or you're in a spot that's really high, there is no growth for us unless we purpose to position ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And I want to title this sermon that this morning, The Mighty Hand of God. And I want to highlight this theme that I've experienced and that I think God wants us to see. And the theme is this, it is good to be humbled by God. Truly, it is good to be humbled by God. For God humbles his people as he works out his plan. And that's what we can anticipate as we read Genesis 41 and go through that text this morning. I want to look at these themes as we go through in these points. The humbling of the mighty, the exaltation of the humble, and to conclude some application points about the magnification of God. This is what God is about in Genesis 41 and in the whole span of chapters 37 to 50. God focuses through Moses' writings in Genesis more on the story of Joseph than he does on Abraham or Isaac. Jacob maybe is in the running, but Joseph's story gets so much attention. And I think the reason is God wants to show us a story that develops not just in a minute, but over a lifetime of how he wraps together his plan through the people that he humbles to save others and to do people the maximum amount of good. Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 41, starting in the first 13 verses. I'm just going to read verse 1 again. I'm so thankful for Don's reading this morning. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. That's our setting for this story this morning. And we are taken away from Joseph and what was happening to him, and even away from the broader narrative of what's happening with Jacob and his other sons, and we're brought into the bedroom of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's a unique setting. But we see, first of all, two whole years have taken place. Since what? I mean, and, and what is this reference to? It is referring back to Genesis 40, where we learned that Joseph had interpreted dreams for both the cupbearer and the baker. And we learned that it turned out well for one and not so well for the other. But the point there was that was the second time Joseph was brought right in, into the, the company of dreamers. And the first time it was, well, his own dreams, and then others had dreams and he interpreted the first set he interpreted the second set and learned in the process that God is the one who was giving these dreams and visions 
right? It's not often that God does this. I don't think the parallel here for us is whatever your dream is, God's going to give that to you. That's not what this is about. This is a unique time in redemptive history when God used these dreams to bring about big momentous changes that set about the course of redemption for whole nations. This isn't just about our personal dream of climbing the corporate ladder or our personal dream to grow a, a big family or a dream to get married. There's nothing wrong with dreaming certain things in life. But the parallel here is that God is moving in significant ways in the history of people to bring about his own ends. And that is so important for us to internalize throughout this story. Joseph has been in prison two whole years after he asked the two men who were released to not forget him. And they have forgotten him. Two whole years where Joseph, who is now in the end of his 20s, facing what is going to be now the 13th year of unjust treatment, 13 years of either being a household slave or being a prisoner as a servant to the master of the prison. 13 years in a country that has done him nothing but harm. 13 years in a place where he has never experienced real justice. And we're then ushered from that prison to Pharaoh's room at night. You could see that Pharaoh has a dream. What I want to do is advance to where we have Pharaoh on the slides, if you will do that for me, please. Pharaoh dreamed. The, the bulk of the drama, as I said, shifts to him. Um, what we learn about Pharaoh in this passage is that he's dreaming a unique dream. If you look at verse 2, this is the content of it. There were uh, seven cows... Verse 2 says they are attractive and plump. And the, the verse tells us that as Pharaoh's dreaming, he's imagining himself standing by the Nile River. In Egypt, the Nile River is what nourishes that area. It's what gives life to that whole area known as the Delta, which allowed things to grow, which allowed plants to come up. We see in the dream that there are ears of wheat that come up. So as Pharaoh is in this dream, he would have been satisfied to see seven sleek, fat cows come up out of the Nile River to go munch on some of the grass in the reed grass area. Why would he have been satisfied? Well, one thing that we learn about Pharaoh is that his name, and it's not a name, it's a title, that literally means great house. Great house. It is a title that indicates that this man holds in his own authority, within his own person, the ability to combine the spiritual world with the physical world and to constantly provide for his people. As he would dream about these seven fat cows coming up out of the Nile River, he may have thought about the god Osiris, or Osiris, who was the god of the underworld. It is said that Osiris was like a bull, and when he would come into 
his place of guiding people in the underworld, he would always be accompanied by seven fat cows. So as he observes these cows going up to eat, he then is horrified to see seven other cows come. And these cows are are thin and sickly, skeletal. And the text literally, where it says, this set, verse 3, the seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. It says in verse 4, the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Where it says they ate them up, it's a very tame word that in Hebrew carries this connotation of cannibalism. The imagery here is that the thin cows ripped the fat cows limb from limb and ate every last bit of them. And Pharaoh woke up, as you can imagine, deeply troubled. He was unaware of what this could possibly mean. You know, what's so interesting was last night I woke up around 4 a.m. and I had been dreaming about numbers. My wife knows that I have these semi-frequent dreams about numbers and trying to put things together like a puzzle that never seems to get put together. And I wake up ready to try to solve something, not knowing quite what that means. I've been reading about these numbers so much that maybe that's what happened to me. I just carried this tail over into my dreams. Well, I eventually went back to sleep and so did Pharaoh. And when he went back to sleep, he had another dream. He dreamed that he saw wheat fields and fields of wheat and anyone who's a farmer or who just likes to get out and garden or even thinks you're a gardener like me (laughs) loves to get out and see that things are actually growing it's encouraging it makes you want to keep working at it and pharaoh again is the master of the great house of egypt and it is his job to make sure that all of his people are fed but much to his horror then Other grains of wheat appear that are sickly, that have been blasted by a scorching wind. And it says in the text that the healthy grain is swallowed up by the sickly grain. It's a different word. It's not talking about chewing and dismembering as much as just engulfing. So again, Pharaoh wakes up and he he has no idea where all of this is coming from. He has no understanding himself, and he is distressed. Uh, He is the one responsible to maintain three things in Egypt. It's found in the word ma'at, M-A-A-T, ma'at. This stands for truth, justice, and order. The Pharaoh is in charge of these things, and by combining both the physical world and the supernatural world, he brings those things together in an unending quest to both stabilize his kingdom and to fight off the forces of spiritual evil that will encroach and bring chaos on the great house. Pharaoh woke up very distressed because he would not be able either in his dream or apparently in reality to bring these three things. You think about our own culture and time. These things continue to be pressed upon and we ourselves desire truth, 
justice and order. And we look for kingdoms to bring those things. What we see here is a humbling of the mighty in one of the greatest scenes before you get to Exodus and the humbling of a future Pharaoh. God invades and he exposes the chaos that is present in the gods of Egypt. He exposes the emptiness that is found in the appeals of this Pharaoh to the supernatural forces, which are nothing more than false gods, demonic presence. Pharaoh even tries to get some of his own magicians to interpret these things. And the way this tended to work was these men had books and they would refer back to weird dreams that other people had and they would be able to interpret what the current dreamer was dreaming based on what happened in the past and they could offer a sort of pseudo uh, solution, something that could fool the Pharaoh, but even they were stumped. These dreams had no origin in the evil supernatural realm. These dreams had come from God. Well, in the midst of this, Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. And it's important for us to note that the beginning of humbling is often when your spirit is troubled. The beginning of humbling for you is when you get into a spot where you realize you have no control. Putting ourselves under the mighty hand of God is about remembering that there is only one who is in control. There is only one. And that is not Xi Jinping, Putin, Trudeau, Macron, or Joe Biden. It's God. And every once in a while, every once in a while, we need to take a step back and remember that the things that just this morning we heard from Lisa who was up here saying, you turn on the news, you hear things, and it troubles your soul. When you are troubled, depend on God to reveal himself and look for him. Place yourself under his mighty hand. And know that even when the powers of the world are aligned against God and against his plan. It's God who is using these powers on earth as his tools to do what he wants. Remember that. Preach that to yourself. And don't fear earthly powers. Fear the Lord. And be sensible in how you think about these things. Only God controls, whether it's the Egyptian ma'at, or whether it's our own current form of justice being shown around, it is God who we look to to define those things and to bring those things. Now, I'll stop preaching about that for a moment. I want to go next to point two and then bring point one and two together, the exaltation of the humble. This is where Joseph is brought out of prison. We know that in the story, we had the chief cupbearer who is very political in how he talks to Pharaoh. He says, I remember this day my offenses. And then he goes on to tell how one time Pharaoh was mad at him 
and at the baker and put them both in prison. And then they had those dreams. And then there was a young Hebrew in prison, a servant of the master of the prison, who interpreted their dreams for them. He doesn't mention God. Joseph had connected the interpretation of dreams to God and had left those men with a continued God-sized vision of life, which apparently the chief cupbearer forgot, just like he forgot Joseph. But on this day, he starts to piece together that time in his own life and brings it up to Pharaoh. Perhaps a, a humbling was taking place in him as well. So Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, verse 14, and then they brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself, right, the Egyptians did not like beards. Um, and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Right? The ideal for the Egyptian was a haircut, a clean shaven face, except if you were like a Pharaoh and you had one of those pointy beard things here, right? And a linen outfit, very white, clean, right? They, they loved, again, order. But Joseph appears, he is healthy, He's, he's done well in prison. He has continued to lead and to administrate. And now he comes. Imagine, no matter what your view of the current White House or administration or any White House and administration that ever happens, anyone who goes into the White House is impressed by the various architecture, the mahogany, the various rooms, the history, and the heaviness of the office. I can't imagine what Joseph must have felt coming that morning from prison into the majestic halls of the leader of that region of the world. Everyone looked to Egypt for its wealth. Even Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, once left Canaan to live in Egypt for a while. In a lot of ways, just because he was curious about all the things he had ever heard about in the majesty of Egypt. And now here is Joseph paraded in to the presence of Pharaoh. When any one of us get to a spot where we are suddenly in the presence of greatness on a human level, we may tend to forget our convictions. We may tend to bend a little bit on our morality in order to show deference to somebody who has the authority perhaps to do something either good or ill to us. Perhaps out of fear or perhaps out of curiosity and amazement, we bend and we're not quite the same people. Chuck Colson years ago would talk about before he became um, a person in ministry, would often work in the White House and he would lead people into the White House and give them tours and he would often do that in order to soften them before they would go to meet the president, especially if they were people who didn't like the president. He would do that in a way to maneuver and to manipulate until finally they would go into the Oval Office if they were a particularly hard case. And there would be um, an impromptu meeting with the president who just happened to have a set of gold cufflinks that he would give the person. By that time, Everybody was softened up and would do whatever the president said, nodding their heads, laughing. Um, Chuck Colson said the worst people were the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders of the United States who would come in 
they would be among the quickest to capitulate on their convictions once they were in the presence of what they perceived to be greatness. This is what I was talking about earlier when I said, whether we are in the pit or whether we are at the pinnacle, it's hard for us It's hard for us to be the same for one thing. And it's hard for us to be a person of integrity wherever we are. Joseph was a man of integrity. When he appeared before Pharaoh, Pharaoh said to him in verse 15, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. A lot of you, you, you there. And what does Joseph do in that moment? In verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. A footnote in my Bible, it it, it says that this is possible to interpret this without God. It is not possible to give Pharaoh an answer about his welfare. Similar to what we heard sung this morning, God can do anything but fail. And in this case, without God, it's impossible that Pharaoh will get what he's after. Joseph is so emphatic about this that when he says, it is not in me, in the English translation, that's just one word in Hebrew. He wants to minimize himself in a sense to say, no, it's God, not me. God. This is his focus. And that has been his laser intense focus over these 13 years in increasing measure. The more opportunity he has to know God, he takes advantage of it. The more stories that he heard in his past from his father Jacob about the sojournings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about Noah and the flood, about the original father Adam and original mother Eve, and about the fall, and about the promise of a redeemer to come. Joseph held on to these things, and he continued to promote God wherever he was. That is a person of integrity. He is the same privately as he is publicly. That is worth aspiring to. That is worth practicing, young people here, to not be so concerned about what your friends say, to not be so concerned about what's popular, but to know what is right according to God and a purpose in your heart that whether you are alone in your room or whether you are out with your friends, whether you are at your studies or whether you are at your play, you will serve God and you will know him and you will represent him to others. That, that is integrity. Now, Joseph, when he interprets what is happening to Pharaoh, he goes through what God will do, and he sees that this moment is not ultimately about him, but about God. Again, this moment is not ultimately about him, but about God. He goes on to show Pharaoh how the dream comes in a pair. So it is, on the one hand, seven years in the seven cows, and seven years in the seven thin cows. It is seven years in the seven years of grain, and it is seven years in the seven blighted ears of grain. 
And in all of this, Joseph points to what God is doing. God is about revealing to Pharaoh that there will be seven years of abundance like no one has ever seen. But they will be followed by seven years of famine that will be so bad as to make people forget what the abundance was ever like. Dare I say, it's like $5 of gas a gallon that makes you forget what $1.99 was ever like. (laughs) Tongue in cheek humor there. Joseph is quick to point out that God has revealed what he is about to do. That God is about doing it and that God will do it. You read your text, you see God mentioned. And it, it, it is a frame around everything that Joseph says. And what is his point in saying all that? Joseph knows that when God reveals this, it is not for the purpose of bringing about destruction. Right? God sometimes will reveal something and that revelation is just flat-out judgment. There's nothing you can do to change it. It's coming. You can try to run, but you'll never be able to escape. But at other times, God reveals his plan, and it's an opportunity to respond with action. Joseph shows by his response that he is going to take God at his revelation and act on it. And that's what he's advising Pharaoh to do. Throughout the rest of scripture, um, you've got Genesis 41, all the way up to verse 38, where the scene is Joseph lays out a plan, basically says, whatever is coming, I advise you, Pharaoh, to find a man who can tax the people 20% of their yearly returns on their grain and abundance. And for the next seven years, we'll impose a 20% tax And as this revenue comes in, we will store it and we're going to put it in public locations and we're going to have to hire somebody who is really good at public relations and human resources and administration and management. And this guy is going to have to travel around. He's going to have to know the people and be trusted by the people because when the time comes to actually get into this storage and start selling it, not handing it out, but selling it back to the people... We're going to have to have somebody who's not stingy and somebody who's just and somebody who knows what they're doing so that they can supply the needs of the people. That's a tall order. But when Pharaoh heard these things and saw Joseph in action, something connected in his spirit and we understand that it was God. And he made a declaration about Joseph. He says in verse 38, If you look there, please. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? We don't think in this text, me and just about every other commentator I've read and preacher from this passage I've ever read, we don't think that Pharaoh is becoming a converted man. We don't think that he is embracing the one true God. In all this text and mention of God in this text, it is the word Elohim. We know, though, that when Joseph used it, he used a, a, an article in front of Elohim and said that it is Ha Elohim, 
who will give you a favorable answer. In other words, the God will answer you. The God will show you what's next. And it is the God who is giving us the opportunity now to make a plan to escape the storm that's coming. How gracious of God, but how revelatory to Pharaoh, a man not quite humbled yet, but a mighty man whose troubled spirit was ministered to by one of God's humble servants. Joseph was lifted up, and the rest of the story shows us how he was given a signet ring, a gold necklace signifying great wealth. He was given a chariot, which in those days would have been like a limousine. And you can imagine as he's going down the roads, the, the Bible tells us that he would ride in his chariot, a man who had been in prison that very day. And as he's riding in the chariot, the servants of Pharaoh are all calling out, Abrek, Abrek, which means bow the knee. And the people would bow their knee. And the crowds are parting like a river of subservient citizens who now look to him as the leader under Pharaoh himself. It's amazing. It's phenomenal, this lifting up that Joseph got that day and the exaltation that he experienced. I was thinking about this this week, how someone is prepared for the next phase that God has for them in his plan. How God does this humbling in the heart of a person. And I think it's worth going back and thinking about this for a moment through a story that I'm going to share with you now. Now, on July 31st, I'll have the opportunity to teach in the Christians You Should Know class about the missionary to China, Isabel Kuhn. So this is a shameless plug to come to that day. All right, this is like a preview that I'm giving you about her life. Um, I'm reading a bit of a biography about Isabel Kuhn each night to our kids at home. And it's amazing how they're, they're drawn to this story. It's been really encouraging to me to read it as well. Well, one of these scenes stuck out to me. At age 25, Isabel Kuhn had been through many difficult years preparing to go to China as a missionary. Um, her mother and father were against it, although at one time it seemed like they would be for it. Uh, financial setbacks kept her from going. Even the, the, the need of education. She got all those things taken care of. And at age 25, back in 1925, she was in front of now the missionary board of the China Inland Mission in Vancouver, British Columbia. And she comes before them, having already sent out many reference letters all around Canada and the United States to teachers and individuals that she had known who could support her character and report back who she was and how she had done and that she was indeed ready to be a missionary sent out to China. Well, one of the reports came back and the, the, the policy of the directors of the mission was that if they received even one negative or troubling referral, that they would pause on sending a missionary out, even if they had 18 others that were good. 
So they shared with Isabel that day that one of these reviews came back and that one of the people she had known said these things about her, that she was proud, disobedient, and a troublemaker. Isabel was floored, and she didn't agree with those words. But the council came up with a policy for her. They said, at that time, there was an anti-foreigner uprising in China. This was the 1920s. The Boxer Rebellion was a thing. And so she decided um, she would stick with China Inland Missions, and they decided they would stick with her, but put her on a probation. They said, we'll see what happens after the uprising is done, and our hope is that you will totally conquer your pride, your troublemaking, and your disobedience. Now, go out and don't tell anybody about any of these things. Um, feeling a bit indignant, Isabel decided that she would stick with the group, but she went and wrote many of her friends to get some commiseration, right? So she did what she wasn't supposed to, but hey, somebody had to understand. Somebody had to talk with her through it. And many friends wrote back and they, they told her how appalled they were at the nerve of the mission agency. But uh, one friend wrote back, a musician and godly influence that she had met at Moody Bible Institute. His name was Roy Bancroft. And he wrote back to say, Isabel, what surprised me most of all was your attitude in this matter. You sound bitter and resentful. Why, if anyone had said to me, Roy B., you are a proud, disobedient, and a troublemaker, I would answer, amen, brother. And even then, you haven't said the half of it. What good thing is there in any of us anyway? We have victory over these things only as we bring them one by one to the cross and ask our Lord to crucify it for us. I can imagine Joseph in the prison, how he was thinking about injustice after injustice upon him. And I was thinking about Isabel when I read this story in relation to Joseph's story and how she experienced injustice and she experienced unfairness. Well, Roy's letter hit her right at the level of her heart. And she was humbled and she asked the Lord for forgiveness and help dealing with those more insidious issues of pride and disobedience and troublemaking. While she didn't feel that those sins were there all the time, she wanted to be aware of what her Lord was doing. She wanted to be aware of what God was doing in her life. And she did want to be ready for whatever he had for her to do. Well, what's most interesting is that she did find out through quite unexpected ways who had written that referral about her. Even though the agency, the mission agency said that they would never tell. They didn't, but somehow she found out another way. It turned out to be a teacher that she had been under who had asked her to spy on other students. And Isabel had said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's immoral. And for that, she was labeled as proud, disobedient, and a troublemaker. You know, she thought for a moment, I ought to go back to the agency and tell them who this was and clear this whole thing up. You know, I would be tempted to do that. Much like I think Joseph may have been tempted in front of Pharaoh to say, listen, before I interpret your dream, can we clear up a few things? I've been in prison 13 years here unjustly. I think it's time for a little bit of justice for Joseph, okay? No, Joseph didn't do that. And what drove him, I think it was similar to what I see Isabel Kuhn concluding in her own words, I seem to hear a voice say, if that had been said of me, I'd have answered, amen, brother. And then you haven't told the half of it. 
dear old Roy, he was right. Why try to make the mission think I was all lily white? They'd have personal experience before long as to just how earthly a person I was. No, Lord, I whispered. I won't bother the mission with it, but how princely of you to let me know. It is like a miracle. Only you could have done it. See, God's wrapping up all kinds of details. And if our lives are spent in trying to promote ourselves or to protect ourselves, I think we're missing the joy of humility to submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I want to go to the last point here as we reflect on this story more this morning. Let me end with a couple of key points that I hope can encourage you. Number three, the magnification of God. And I'll give you this point. Bank everything on the Lord when you are broken. Bank everything on the Lord when you are broken. This morning, we're trying to explain, trying to tell you hard concepts like humbling and exaltation. And there's really no way to master either unless you realize that you are broken and that you fall back on the mercies of your God. Um, as I said earlier, I alluded to the fact that I try to be a gardener. And this year, I've had a couple of successes with tomatoes. It's amazing how one year is bad and another year is okay. A lot of them are lousy. But I had some extra tomatoes this year, and one of the, the seedlings, I didn't have any place to put it. So I took it after it looked dead, and I threw it over beside the compost heap. And I came back this week, a couple, years a couple weeks later, years later, that'd be some really good tomatoes, couple of weeks later and that tomato is growing it's healthy looking and reaching up to the sky Colin alluded to this a couple of weeks ago that as Christians we have to put our roots down deep right we have to put our faith deep and that tomato is a picture of that to me it still had some roots and it found the ground and it went as deep as it could Christian Put your faith in the promises of God and let your faith sink deep, no matter where you are. You could be in one of the hardest places right now that you've ever experienced. Put your faith down deep in the promises of God. And like that tomato and the part that we can see in the green, keep reaching for the active presence of God. Trust him. Like he worked in the past through those promises he will work for you. I would encourage you to internalize 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 7. It says there, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you how gracious of our God that he who is mighty he who is pushing forward his plan still tells us about it and encourages us to cast on him 
our anxieties, and to keep obeying him with confidence that he will take care of us. Like Joseph saw the famine coming and made a plan of action to do something about it, go doomsday preppers, right? He then took an opportunity to put into play a plan of action to save a nation. But then think about what we have in front of us, an unending mission of God that is still unfinished. And we know God is gonna come back and we know he's gonna save the world, but we're still here and our mission is his mission and to align under his plan to save the people in this world through the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And friends, I would also like you to see at the last, in Joseph's exaltation, the preview of the better exalted one. I don't do well with exaltation. You may not either. I, I, I like um, a guy who plays for the Orlando Magic. His name is Jonathan Isaac. You should listen to that guy sometime. You may not agree with um, his positions on current issues, but one of the things he constantly does is points people back to Jesus. He uses his platform to talk about Jesus a lot. And one of the things that exaltation and times of progress and times of great joy can be for is to help people understand this is my God. This is, this is what he's done for me. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up and I'm gonna end here with a quote from W.A. Criswell. He was a pastor at First Baptist Dallas for a long, long time. And as he considered the story of Joseph, this is what he said. When we read of the sufferings of Joseph and of his glorious exaltation, we are reading exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak of Joseph, we speak of a blameless life. We speak of his father's love. We speak of one sent for his lost brethren. We speak of one placed in the pit, stripped of his robe and sold for silver and delivered to the Gentiles. Then we speak of his life in the dark land of Egypt. Then we speak of his Gentile bride, his elevation to the kingship of the land. And finally of the revelation of who he is to his brethren who have been saved from death through him. I repeat, when I read the story, I have that same spirit of deepening love for God, for what he has done for me, as I do as when I read the story of the Lord.